Welcome to Saga Shorts, where we're reviewing the short stories of Icelanders tucked inside the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is the ninth episode in our Saga Short project. Is it only nine? Why do I feel like we've done a lot more than nine of the fatter? Oh, well, that's because you're losing your mind. That's quite possible. I think so. <laughs> uh, last week was the International Congress on Medieval Studies, the Kalamazoo Conference, mm-hmm. which is always a busy time. It is. But it was uh, virtual this time, so, John, you got to enjoy the whole <sighs> conference experience from uh, the comfort of your own home. W- wasn't that nice? Didn't you enjoy that? Uh, it, it was something. Um, <laughs> it happened. But I, I, I did get to see a few b- good papers, though, good. but from a distance. Uh, right. And, of course, as always happens, the conference coincides with the end of my semester, which means I got to juggle conference responsibilities and grading deadlines. Ooh, you lucky devil. Yeah, lucky's one word. It's not the word I'd use, but it is a word. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I appreciate everyone being patient while Andy and I handled our various responsibilities the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah. Our busy times are kind of staggered at the beginnings and ends of semesters because we start on slightly different schedules, which makes prepping episodes and getting them recorded extra difficult at those times. But we've run the gauntlet and we've survived, Andy. Yes, now we we're ready for a quick saga short. And then we'll dive headlong into the exciting Fosbrother saga, the saga of the Sworn Brothers. Absolutely, yes. The Fosbrother saga is going to be a fun one. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, listeners, you're going to want to tune in for that one in the coming weeks or months or whenever we get around to starting oh. that one. Andy, let's not be ridiculous. We've oh. had our vacation. It's time to get to work. We've got to push out some new episodes of Saga Thing. Sure, sure, John. Uh, when when do you start uh, your summer teaching again? Remind me. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> I'm a... Uh, I'm well known among all my friends as an optimist. I'm sure this is going to be just fine. I'm going to trust that it's going to be just fine. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. Uh, who are you and what have you done with John? See, now that's the kind of cynicism that's going to drag us back down. <laughs> I may not be a consummate optimist, but I'm a pop-eyed optimist. Okay. And I feel confident that we'll be pushing out False Brother Saga episodes on the regular. Famous last words. Never mind. Mm. Uh, so you were in charge of selecting the Thouter for today. I was. Uh, why don't you tell the good folks a little bit about the text we're here to talk about? Instead of trying to make me look like a fool. You? A fool? John. I would never. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but okay. Not successfully. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so our subject for this episode is Gisel Thouter Ilugasoner, or the tale of Gisel Ilugason. Yeah, and that's Gisel, not Gisli, yes. in case you're wondering out there in listener land. Uh, but Gisel is a variant on the name, mm-hmm. so uh, don't be embarrassed if you get the two confused. Just as we'll try not to be embarrassed if we slip up and call our protagonist Gisli at some point along the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I've been working with this one for weeks now. Gisel is ingrained in my brain at this point. I've been typing it into databases uh-huh. and, yeah, uh-huh. not finding yeah. much, though. Uh, also, I want to point out, also, you do the episode editing. So if you screw it up, it'll disappear down the memory hole. That's true. If you so, screw it up, it definitely won't. But if I screw it up, right. no one will know. They might hear me mess it up, but if you do it, it'll just get erased. <laughs> All right. Now, John, since uh, you just read it for the first time this morning, I think, or very recently, you mind sharing your opinion on this uh, Thouter really quickly? How does it rank with the other Thouter? Uh, is it a good one? Is it a smash? Or is it a trash? What are you thinking? Right. So let's see. So I first read this uh, when we were getting ready to record last week, and we pushed off recording. Oh, so, so I had to read it again today okay, to good. be fresh for it. It's short, though. Uh, it Absolutely. Uh, and as we'll see, this is a, it's got a lot going on for a short text. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to call it the zaniest or most complex of tales, but it tells a good story. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I like it uh, quite a lot. Um, according to Sigurd Nordahl and Marlene Siklameni, it's a great story. Uh, both of them agree that it is, as uh, Marlene Siklameni says, literarily one of the outstanding thatter in Old Norse literature. How about that? 
know, that's a that's pretty high praise for a text that most people have never heard of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And and I'm going to admit that uh, I hadn't heard of this one before selecting it either. But uh, mm. uh, well, sa- yeah, before I'd read this one, I'd, I'd had no experience of it whatsoever. Yeah. Now, sadly, Nordahl's introduction in the Eastlands Fornreed edition and Cyclamini's article on literary perspective in the tale just about covers not only the praise that this one receives, but also most of the commentary on Kizostater Ilugasonar. It pops up huh. here and there in other books and articles, but only ever as an example or a quick, quick quick reference right and nothing from our old pal Jonas Christensen either right no he doesn't say anything about the Thauter in fact most people don't say anything about the Thauter mm-hmm. uh, but he does mention Gisel Ilugesen, uh when he's talking about skaldic poetry but again that's a quick reference acknowledging its existence the existence of that poem mm-hmm. uh, there's not much else out there though I did I did find a review of Nordahl's edition from 1939 in which Stefan Anderson provides a thorough overview of each text in the edition before saying something like Skipping over the unimportant Gisselstauter, we turn to... <laughs> <laughs> nice. So he says nothing about it. I mean, that's... Yeah, so I think it may have been a bit of an exaggeration to say this is, quote, widely regarded, I think you said, as one of the outstanding Fauter of World Norse literature. Oh, yeah, well, to be fair, uh, first of all, that was Cyclamini's <laughs> quote, mm-hmm. not mine. Um, <laughs> but I didn't really delve too deeply into Scandinavian scholarship, um... Uh, what I did see when looking at it, uh, there suggests a similar kind of dearth of interest in Gisel Stauter. Uh, mm-hmm. But hey, you know, for all I know, John, most articles on Thatter in those languages open with something like, if we're going to talk about Thatter, then then we have to acknowledge one of the greatest tales in all of Scandinavian literature. That's right, people. We're talking about the inimitable Gisel Stauter Ilugasonar. Yeah, I don't think you'd find anything like that. I mean, I thought you were an optimist. You know, optimism and realism aren't mutually exclusive attitudes, Andy. Well, I mean, they are in Cleveland sports fandom, my friend. Uh, <laughs> you'll never find I mean, those What we're really getting again. at here is that this this is this is really us kind of that limb that we edge out on when we talk about the Thauter. Right? Yeah. We've, we've really spent our time on the sagas, not on the Thauter. The, uh, the scholarship for the Thauter and the history behind them really is something that we come to as informed but non-specialist readers. Sure, yeah. Uh, and so what we learned here is a couple of scholars think it's a pretty good story. Yes, that's true. And that's true. about as far as the English language scholarship will take us. Yes. Uh, anything else we need to know about this one before we move into our summary and discussion? Yes. Um, and this is going to sound a little familiar to you, given our conversation the other night about how to handle the saga of the Sworn Brothers. Ooh, ooh. Let me guess. Go ahead. Go ahead. You remember? Okay, if I recall, we didn't talk much about the saga because you hadn't finished reading it yet. That's true. I still haven't but- finished reading it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get on that because <laughs> uh, we are going to actually try to get another episode recorded. Very soon. I got time. Uh, sure you do. Uh, but I do remember saying that we need to figure out a way to address the fact that there are two different versions ding, of ding, the ending of that song. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there are two versions of Gisselstadter? There are indeed two versions. Uh, this is going to be a good trial run then. Yeah. Uh, what do we know about these versions? Do we, have, uh, do we have dates? Do we have authors? Do we have place names? Does one precede the other? What do we got going on? Well, I mean, let's start with where they appear first. Um, so the mm-hmm. version we're going to focus on in this episode appears in the Saga of Magnus Bearleg, or Bearlegs, found in the Hrokenskina, mm-hmm. or the Wrinkled Parchment, which is a 15th century manuscript collection of king sagas that was probably written sometime in the late 13th century. Um, although, mm-hmm. you know, when when was the actual Thauter written? We don't know. Uh, now, it covers the lives of the Norwegian royalty from Magnus Goldie's rise to power in the 1030s all the way through Magnus Erlingsson's death in 1177. 
Right. Uh, so roughly speaking, this version of the story comes to us from the late 13th century, we think. Well, yeah. Like I said, uh, the Thouter itself has been dated to the early 13th century. But, uh, I mean, John, you know how complicated dating these texts can get. Uh, there's so many things we could do here. Uh, yes, because they, they never call you back. Mm-hmm. They can't decide where they want to eat. Yeah. Uh, they ghost you when you think you're making progress on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's uh, there's there's so many bad jokes we could make here. <laughs> <laughs> At least now I understand why you were banned from the library. Well, I mean, I'm not one to read and tell in. Uh, <laughs> so where can we find the other version of Gisela's daughter? Yeah, so there's a slightly different version in the saga of Yon Bishop of Holar or Yon Saga Helga. Um, oh. It's a late 13th or early 14th century bishop saga about the life of yeah, yeah. Jon Ogmundersen, uh, the first bishop of Holar. Okay, this makes sense because of the prominent role John plays in this daughter. Yeah, yeah. And now to answer your question about which came first or which one draws on the other, this has been the subject of some debate, again, mainly among just a handful of scholars. But Sigurd the Nordahl feels pretty strongly that the Jon saga version comes first. I'm sensing a little bit of uh, a little bit of doubt in your voice. Nordahl's pretty reliable most of the time. He is, but I, I mean, I think not in this case. Uh, I've mm-hmm. I've read both versions. I plan to talk about both versions, and I'm not really convinced because near uh-huh. the end of the Yon Saga version, the the Vita, uh, the author mentions that he's aware of other versions of the story that differ markedly from the one that he's just told. Interesting. So so he knew about other versions. Yeah. But, but how many? I mean, does that indicate that the Magnus Bearleg saga version comes first or what? Uh, possibly, but uh, not necessarily. How's that for a good scholarly answer? <laughs> now, Marlene Ciclamini... Evasive and noncommittal. It's exactly what we like. <laughs> yes, yeah. So Marlene Ciclamini actually suggests that the two versions are different enough to suggest that both authors likely drew on an earlier account, taking the kernel of the story from history or legend or something, and then adapted it according to their own literary mm-hmm. needs. Well, I, I definitely, I mean, I, I read John Saga many, many years ago, but I have no memory of the version of this Thouter. Yeah, and this so, one's tucked. Uh, how different are they? Yeah, this one's actually tucked in at the end. It's not like part of the main narrative usually. So you uh, might okay. not have even it's, had an edition that had Yeah, I may not have even gotten there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would say that they're different enough in the right places that I think it supports Cyclamini's theory that the authors had different mm-hmm. agendas. Um, but I don't, I don't think we should talk about the differences just yet. So, uh, okay. let's go ahead and tell the story from the King Magnus Bearleg saga, and then we can circle back and discuss some of the differences after we finish. Oh, this is going to turn into a long one, isn't it? Oh, you bet. <laughs> All right. Uh, if there's nothing else we need to do for setup, let's, uh, let's do it. Okay. I'm good. Let's go. The Tale of Gisel Lugason. Now, in the days of King Magnus Bearlegs, a young man called Gisela Lugason traveled from Iceland to Norway. At that time, Gisela was only 17 years old. So, as the name suggests, Gisela is the son of Elugi, the son of Thorvald, the son of Tind, the son of Halkel. Uh, Halkel, our listeners will surely remember, is also <laughs> the father of Elugi the Black. Sure they'll remember, uh, yes. Of course. Uh, and Elugi the Black is not only an important figure in Saga Age Iceland, he's also the father of Gunlag Serpentum. Now, that's one that I think people will remember, but that, that is a lot of fathers and sons you just ran through there. Well, that's how the source material works. Uh, I think our listeners have been well prepped for this kind of thing. Uh, that's probably why they have to listen with paper and pencil ready, right? Uh, of course they do. Uh, <laughs> but just in case, we'll do the simple version. Okay. Uh, Gisel Ilugason is the great-grandson of a guy named Tind, 
who was Gunlaug Serpentung's uncle. So the goal is just to connect Giesel to Gunlaug Serpentung, a person that we're familiar right. with. Gotcha. Right. Now, those connections aren't necessarily important for this story, but it does establish Giesel as a member of the Gilsbeckinger clan, one of the more prominent kin groups in Western Iceland in the, well, in the 10th and 11th centuries. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his family connections might be important, but only indirectly. Far more important for both versions of this story is the fact that Giesel is an Icelander in Norway. And his otherness as an Icelander, when among the Norwegians, it really is a running theme that I think both authors emphasize, as we're going to see. Uh, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. We can circle back to that, too. Right. Okay, so Giesel arrives on the shores of Norway and seeks room and board with a rich man called Hauken at Forbjörn. He spends the winter with Hauken, but mostly keeps to himself. And rather than helping out like a good guest should, Giesel spends his time quietly brooding in the shadows. And Hauken notices this, and he eventually decides to confront his guests, and he says, I've been watching you, Giesel. You've been in a bad mood all winter, and you seem rather anxious all the time. That can only mean one thing. Either you're planning some great task, or you've some important issue to deal with. Now, please tell me what's going on so I can help you. I promise to be discreet. And I think from the way that Hauken talks, it's clear that he's genuinely concerned for Giesel and willing to help if he can. But it's also fair to say that he's suspicious of Giesel's dark mood and maybe doesn't want to get swept into some sort of Icelandic Norwegian blood feud that could potentially cost him his livelihood or even his life. Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, and Giesel seems to appreciate all of those nuances as well. He explains that he has come to Norway seeking a man called Gjafveld, uh, who was involved in the killing of Giesel's father back in Iceland. And although Gjafveld wasn't alone in the attack, he was the one to strike the killing blow. Giesel has heard that Gjafveld is a retainer of King Magnus, and so he's come to Norway to find him and to avenge his father or die trying. Hauken listens to all of this rather intently, and, and while he certainly understands Giesel's motivation... He doesn't think that he's going to have much of a chance since Gjafald is one of King Magnus's favorites and he's always close by the king. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that Giesel is a foreigner, he thinks, is going to make it even more difficult for him to get close to Gjafald, who, like I said, is, is always near the king. This is all true, but Hauken does say that he won't stand in Giesel's way if he wants to pursue that vengeance. Which is an interesting choice because we've seen examples in our saga survey of other hosts who pay a steep price for harboring a man who's intended doing harm to a Norwegian king or his retainers. Yeah, I agree, yeah. And, it, it, I mean, it doesn't even have to be a plot against a king for a host to worry about his guest's plans. Remember, in our sure. last saga, Thorhall, uh, he was reluctant to host Thord Menace when he first arrived, and he paid mm -hmm. the ultimate price for listening to his wife and hosting Thord. I mean... <laughs> There's some nuances there you're skipping over. The man was also an inveterate coward. <laughs> well, you know that. Uh, who was killed in part for his cowardice. Uh, but it is it is interesting that Hauken doesn't balk at all at what is really a very dangerous plan that Gisela is proposing. Yeah, and Marlene Ciclamini notices this as well in her article on literary perspective in the Thouter. She suggests mm -hmm. that the version that we're covering here, which really emphasizes the revenge plot far more than the Yon Saga version... It, that it works to reinforce a sort of heroic ideal that is typical of what we see so often in the sagas. She likens Hauken's implicit support for Giesel's revenge plot and all the subsequent examples of social support for his motivations in the text to the kind of admiration that Thorstein Drummond received for his efforts to avenge his half-brother Grettir back in Constantinople. Remember that? We haven't talked about Thorstein in a while. No. Uh, for those who don't remember, uh, Thorstein cut down a member of the Varangian guard right in front of all the other guards, yeah. like in the barracks. Mm -hmm. 
but that's all. Of course, he had a good reason because this was the man who had killed his brother. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that Thorsten finds a lot of social support in Constantinople for his mission, though. Like, even someone like that textually does pay a price for sort of ostentatiously taking revenge. Right? He's immediately arrested and thrown in a dungeon. Well, I mean, of course he is. You can't just go around killing people, even for a good cause. But uh, I do think, you know, if you're... If, Tell it to the sagas. <laughs> if, you, if you are looking at the uh, the text itself, if you're looking at Gretchen's saga, I think it does support the heroic ideal behind Thorstein's actions. And it's downright romantic the way that it's laid out. <laughs> That's fair. It's capital R romance. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, almost exactly, in fact. Yeah. Um, so, Hauken tells Giesel that King Magnus will be passing the winter in Nidaros... And that he's going to probably find Gelfald there. And this is where I think Hauken really implicates himself in a plot uh, against the king. A further sign of his support for this uh, heroic vengeance of Gisels. Hauken tells him that he's not going to get anywhere near Gelfald if he doesn't come up with a good disguise. But not to worry, Hauken has a great idea. Yeah, Gisel's lucky to have stumbled upon this guy. This is a very helpful host. He sure is, yeah. And this is one of the stranger, more interesting disguises that we're going to see in the sagas. Oh, yeah, absolutely one of the most interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we haven't seen, I mean, not to give away the, the story, but we haven't seen a whole lot of leprosy in the sagas so far. <laughs> no, we haven't. So, uh, yeah, on that note, heeding Hauken's advice, Gisel heads to Nidaros and hits the streets to find Gelfald. But to be sure that no one looks too closely at him, no one gets too close to him, he has mm. hot wax poured onto his face, and then he lets it harden. Right. And now, of course, we can wonder why he would do a thing like that. And it's not just some kind of, you know, little game that he and Hauken are playing. Uh, <laughs> Gisel is trying to appear to be a leper. That's right. Yeah. He's pouring hot wax on his face so he can appear to be like a leper. It's a fascinating little detail. It really is. Yeah. I, I, I... Honestly, we... No, go ahead. we could do a whole saga brief on disease and disfigurement. Well, and but we won't. I know. Well, we might. We probably won't, but we might. <laughs> but but while we await that happy day, uh, we can make just a few points that are worth making here. Okay. Yeah, I will accept a few points because I'm curious, and I think this is a really interesting moment. Oh, so go ahead. So generous. Uh, well, first, while the translation indicates that he took on the appearance of a leper, the Thouter doesn't really say leper or leprosy in the original text. Mm-hmm. It just says that he poured wax on his face and let it harden, and after this... He was Van Heliger to look upon, uh, which means something like he looked uh, deformed or unholy. Yeah. Uh, the Old Norse word for leprosy was uh, Likfra, uh, and later uh, there's a word Holdveki. Uh, um, yeah, that, that's all true. But I do think the implication that he's trying to look like a leper is pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, sure. the most common images of lepers that we see from the Middle Ages in illuminated manuscripts and descriptions, they involve facial deformities of some sort, whether that's spots, bumps, sagging skin, something like that. Um, there's that famous illuminated manuscript image of a, a leper with dots all over his face holding a bell, right? right? Um, so he could be disguising himself as a burn victim, but I do think that leper seems like the most obvious option here. Right, and I'm not arguing that Gisel isn't making himself up to look like a leper. Uh, I just think it's interesting that the text doesn't seem to need to specify, mm-hmm. doesn't feel yeah. the need to specify. Right? The mere mention of this sort of hardened wax on his face, this kind of melting facial features, yeah. is apparently enough to indicate leprosy to contemporary audiences. Yeah, or at least uh, a disfiguring skin disease of some kind. I guess so, yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Um, now, if we can trust our medieval sources, uh, which aren't always the most reliable, 
leprosy was a common enough problem, especially in urban centers. And medieval Scandinavia certainly wasn't free from this curse. Uh, when I was looking into this, I think I read that the earliest leper hospital in Norway was set up in Nidaros in the 12th century, which is kind of where and when Gisostalter takes place, more or less. Uh, but, but leprosy was definitely a factor in Norway long before that. Sure, sure. We should also say that those hospitals that you mentioned, uh, those were cropping up all over Europe in the high Middle Ages. Uh, yeah. And they were often quite humane in their treatment of leprous people. Uh, they were uh, Lepers were sort of patients, sort of inmates, but also sort of tenants and sometimes employees. Mm. Uh, the healthier among them worked various jobs around the place to help keep things running. And in a lot of cases, lepers were actually allowed to come and go from the facility. Like they weren't really being cordoned off from society. Uh, we have references to them being allowed to move about in towns. Hmm. Uh, and, and there were actually laws in many places protecting lepers from mistreatment. Now, obviously, we're not sure when leprosy first appears among Scandinavian peoples, but anecdotal and archaeological evidence suggests that it was pretty early. Yeah, yeah. Early enough that Vikings, it's been suggested, may have been vectors for spreading leprosy to new locations. Uh, like Ireland, for example, mm-hmm. during the raiding period. Yeah, those Europeans bring in the worst stuff with them when they travel, don't they? <laughs> I mean, we we really can't get into epidemiology and the history of disease, though. We keep we keep tap dancing on the edge of the rabbit hole. Uh, what's important for right now is that leprosy was prominent enough in places like Norway and Sweden and Denmark to warrant hospitals, like you mentioned, uh, and even uh, to have laws addressing the issue. Oh, really? Where where does it show up in law codes? I didn't see that. Uh, well, for example, the, the Gulathing law code from 11th century Norway included a provision that would actually annul a betrothal if it was discovered that one of the betrothed was suffering from leprosy. Well, I, mean, I, I can see how that law would gain support. Yes, that's fair. <laughs> Sickness and in health, Andy. Sickness and in health. Yeah, but if, it, if uh, you haven't sworn that yet, you know, you're still, you're still, <laughs> right, you're good still point. all good. Good point. You can just slowly back out of the room. Yeah. Uh, now, and the, the same laws also excuse lepers from military service uh, and seems in some ways to treat them as invalids. Hmm. Right? So, for example, they're not counted the same way as other people for tax purposes. Oh, that's all very interesting. Um, okay, well, I'm sure there's a lot more you could say about leprosy here, but... Um, I know, I know. We're not going into no, it. No, we're not. Uh, I do think we should just say that leprosy is actually a somewhat slippery term in a medieval context. Well, I mean, it would be, right? I mean, medieval medicine in general worked according to its own kind of logic, and it tends to be consistent to that logic, but it doesn't classify diseases by the same criteria as modern medicine. Yeah. Uh, And that means that a diagnosis of leprosy might cover a broader range of diseases than what we would think of as Mm leprous throughout the Middle Ages. And it could include all sorts of skin conditions. Uh, We really, we can't even really say how prevalent leprosy actually was, right? Leprosy as defined by modern medicine, I mean, because we can only trace the most extreme cases, right? Uh, The the texts tell us it was very widespread, but the texts, again, were being nonspecific. It's only when we look at um, cases where marks were left on the bones of surviving skeletons, yeah. right, where we can actually see a, le- a case of leprosy. And even that doesn't account for the fact that leprosy wasn't necessarily a deadly disease, uh, that it would take years, decades for severe cases of leprosy to affect the skeletal structure. Mm. A person might die of natural causes long before that happened. Okay, okay. Now, John, this isn't an episode of Sawbones. Um, I love a good leper history as much as the next guy, but uh, we've got a story to tell here. Okay, go on. Ignore the lepers, Andy. See how far that gets you. (laughs) I'm going to have to risk it. (laughs) 
So, uh, Gisel disguises himself as a leper and walks the streets of Nidaros looking for Gjalfald. And while his disguise seems to work well, he can't find a good opportunity to get close enough to Gjalfald to exact his revenge. Right, but he's persistent and he's, he's making half shekels everywhere he goes. Uh, <laughs> and so... It takes a few days, but then on one Saturday, he spots Gelfeld uh, coming down the street with a large troop who are all following King Magnus. As the troop passes by, a woman comes out of a nearby house with a child in her arms. Aww. She calls to Gelfeld and he steps aside to greet her while the troop carries on. That is so sweet. Now, Gisel watches this domestic scene from afar, and when Gelfeld parts from his wife and continues on down the street with another man, Gisel moves in. He draws his sword as he approaches and strikes a vicious blow on Gelfald's shoulder. Now, this cut is deep, but the arm is not severed. And as Gelfald turns to see who had attacked him, Gisel brings his sword down on the other shoulder. Yikes. Uh, well, Gelfald collapses in the street. Gisel runs as fast as he can down to the piers, uh, where he sees a small man in a boat loaded with firewood. He jumps onto the boat causing the firewood to tumble mostly overboard into the water, and then he rows himself and the small man toward Baki. Yeah. Now, as soon as he feels like he's made it far enough away from the shore, he stops and stands up to claim the deed for all to hear. He says, Hello, my name is Giseli Lugason. You killed my father, and now you die. Uh No? (laughs) No. That's That's not not a direct translation. That's a paraphrase. I feel like we missed an opportunity, so I had to throw it in there. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, no. What he actually says is, I claim responsibility for the wounds dealt to Gjalfald, King Magnus's man. If indeed they are wounds, I also claim his killing should he die from those wounds. It's a very wordy kind of boast. This morning well, I was called... It's a very called... legal kind of boast is what it is. Yeah, that's true, it is. Uh, this morning I was called Vigfus, the battle eager. But tonight I hope to be called Ofeg, not doomed to die. Honestly, it's a pretty good boast, especially if he manages to get away. But right, having hot. having um, carjacked this poor guy with his firewood <laughs> and, and spilled uh, all this firewood in the in the water. Right, right. Uh, but getting away is easier said than done. Uh, the mm-hmm. alarm has been sounded now, and of course, and the king's guard begins searching for Gisel in the boats along the river and all along the shore. And before long, uh, he's spotted. Well, we should say first that he's he manages to get out of the boat, and sort of uh, uh, he scuttles off into the woods. But before long, he's spotted hiding in some bushes, and then he's arrested. Yeah. Uh, so his hope of being called Ofig, the not doomed to die, may be slipping away from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, and the king's guard also sees that poor guy with the the firewood guy with the boat <laughs> that Kissel sees <laughs> to cross the river. Yeah, uh, that's uh, Thorstein, by the way. He's a short mm-hmm. fellow who uh, only comes up to Gisel's shoulder. And the king's men throw him together with Gisel, <laughs> claiming that the two must have been working together. And Gisel is walking along next to uh, Thorstein, and he overhears the guards saying that both men deserve to die for their crimes. Uh, now, this upsets Gisel, who knows that Thorstein is innocent. And right. he hopes to convince the king's men by grabbing Thorstein by the shoulder, and he says, Look here. How could this puny thing have defended his boat if I wanted to use it, when I can throw him around like a child? Let this man go in peace. He had nothing to do with this. And, uh, you know, the guards are convinced, and they let Thorstein walk free. This is, I mean, there's so many problems with this. Not least of which is that Thorstein has oddly become an extra in an 80s action film. Um, (laughs) But also, you're saving him by announcing to the world what a puny, hopeless human being he is. Yes. That's rough. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's effective, but it's it's rough. Yeah. Um, but I'm sure Thorstein's thankful either way. I mean, I guess so. He's like, hey, now, now some firewood, please. Thank you uh, so much. All right, so Thorsten manages to wander off, but Gisla is marched to the dungeon and put in chains. Mm-hmm. And while he's down there being guarded by this woman who's in charge of the dungeon. Oh, you mean the uh, the dungeon master? I Sure, a dungeon master, if you will. Sure. Uh, while Gisla is being guarded by his DM, we're <laughs> introduced to a couple of important characters, both of whom are influential Icelanders. Uh, the first is Tate, the son of Bishop Gizur of Skalholt. The second is the priest, Jon Ogmundsson, uh, who would later become the Bishop of Holar. Yeah. Jon Ogmundsson is a, a pretty prominent figure, so uh, we should pause over him just briefly. I actually wanted to address Tate first. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know much about Tate, so why don't you uh, I mean, go ahead? Yeah, I, I mean, I won't say I know a ton about him. We know a lot about his father. Oh, Gizur is well, the yeah, son. that. Okay, then. Uh, Gizor is the second bishop in Iceland's history, following in the footsteps of his father, Islif. He helped to establish a kind of peace between the church and the chieftains of Iceland before he took office in 1082, and then helped establish the foundations upon which the church could establish itself successfully in Iceland. The The 11th century was not sort of smooth sailing for the church in Iceland. No. Uh, so, uh, Gizor helps to set up the tithe system that the Storgother of the late 12th century used to help them gather power, uh, which is a bit of a problem. That's a different story. Yeah. Uh, and it's also Gizur, Tate's father, that helps to set up Jan Ogmundersen as the first bishop of Holar in 1106. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Tate may feel like a bit of an obscure figure, but as the son of Gizur, he certainly wields some influence. Yes. Okay. If you're going to from that angle, yes, he does. Um, and as you said, Jan Ogmundersen, our second important Icelander in Nidaros here, uh, would go on to become the Bishop of Holar, the first Bishop of Holar. And uh, both versions of Gisulstauter serve to highlight the faith and wisdom of Jon uh, or John, almost to the point of overshadowing Gisel's own story. Uh, there's a lot we could say about Jon Ogmundersen, but uh, I think we should be quick here um, for our listeners. Uh, I'll say this. In addition to rising to the office of bishop, Jon is credited by his contemporaries with changing the habits of Icelanders, drawing them toward a more Christian way of life. And according to his saga, he was very strict with people of bad morals, but kind and gentle to all good people. He lived according to the tenets that he taught, serving as a model of good Christian living for all. And he worked diligently to uproot the last remaining vestiges of paganism with uh, middling success, but he tried uh, <laughs> all throughout Iceland. And he even went so far as to change the name of the days, transforming things like Odensdagar to Midvikodagar, uh, which is midweek day, and mm-hmm. the day of Tur and, and Thor to third day and fifth day, respectively. And if you're an Icelander, you know that these are still the days of the week that you use. Um, it's one of those curious things. Uh, mm-hmm. Iceland ends up sort of jettisoning the names of the Norse gods for days of the week, where in English we kept them. Right? We, so yeah. we still end up with Tur's Day and Woden's Day and Thor's Day. Yeah, and Frigg's Frig Day and, and Frig's all that. Day, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is that after his death, uh, Jon Ogmundersen would go on to become Saint Jon, uh, one of Iceland's first saints. So mm-hmm. he's kind of a big deal. I Kind of. Um, yeah. In addition to those two heavy hitters, there are also... More than 300 other Icelanders in Nidaros at the time of Gisla's arrest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's something like three ships and lots and lots of Icelanders uh, there. But it's, it, all of this sounds like we're building towards some sort of conflict. I mean, you know, it depends on whether cooler heads can prevail, but it does seem like we might be. Well, I, for one, look forward to it. In the meantime, 
King Magnus is extremely angry when he hears about the attack on Gelfeld and demands that Gisel be executed immediately. Mm. But just as he pronounces the sentence... Mid-afternoon bell rings. And you know what that means. Well, it's Gnomes, uh, the ninth hour of the day, right? <laughs> yes, but what else? Well, it's uh, time for mid-afternoon prayer, I guess. Yes, that's what Gnomes means, but why is that important here? I don't know. Why don't you tell me, John? Well, fortunately, the town bishop is there at the meeting with King Magnus uh, instead of you. Uh, <laughs> when, he, when he hears the bell ring, he reminds the king that it is customary to have a truce on a holy day, no matter how oh. serious the crime. Okay, so uh, let me see if I understand this. With the strike of the mid-afternoon bell, the transition from Saturday to Sunday had begun, basically turning this into a holy day. Right. Remember we mentioned earlier that this attack happened on a Saturday. It so does, yes. Yeah, so, so now uh, this is sort of this bizarre moment when you find that the, the sort of Christian imposition of the hours of the day results in this just adjustment of when truces happen. Interesting. Well, how does uh, King Magnus take this news, John? <laughs> he doesn't take it well. Mm. Uh, he says, well, this must be some sort of trick. I suspect you're all conspiring against me. <laughs> but the bishop assures him that this is not the case and that he's free to do side as he likes. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to share here that King Magnus as a Norwegian king, is really being set up as this kind of volatile figure. Now, he does have a kind of a reputation like that in history. He's a violent figure known for kind of going out and uh, leading a lot of military campaigns, trying to conquer different places. Um, but he's definitely, for literary purposes, being set up a certain way here um, for effect. Right. But, you know, this also introduces choice and free will as an important theme in the text. One, I think, that's going to come into play a little bit later. For now, Magnus is given the option to respect the customs of the Holy Day or to pursue his personal vendetta against Giesel. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, he chooses wisely to postpone the trial until Monday. Right, and that gives Giesel some breathing room um, and some time for word of Giesel's predicament to spread throughout town and into the ears of those 300 Icelanders. Mm -hmm. It turns out that many of them either know Giesel or are related to him. Remember, he comes from a prominent family with lots and lots of branches. Uh, and those men gather to discuss how they might help their friend, their kinsman, more importantly, their countrymen. Yeah. Uh, it's a difficult issue since it involves the king directly and they don't come to any conclusions right away. Yeah. So we'll leave them uh, to their plotting for now and we'll transition into Sunday when King Magnus receives a message that a gravely injured Gjalfald would like to see him. He's and still alive. He's still alive. He's, he's very badly hurt. He's getting better. Actually, he's not getting better. <laughs> no, his wounds <laughs> smell of almonds. Oh, that's not um, No. When, when Magnus arrives, Guffold tells him that he wants to sort out his finances before he passes. But more important to him, he has one final wish. He says, My lord, I would like to ask that you give Gisel a truce. He has avenged his father in a manly way. Right. King Magnus, of course, is shocked by this. He says, there's no chance of that. I like how angry kings are all Yosemite Sam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, darn it. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, Gelfeld continues, reminding his king that he has always served him well, even risking his own life on behalf of his lord. And he insists that forgiving Gisel is essential to helping him get into heaven. Hmm. So as they part, he says, I expect, my lord, that you will not shut me out from heaven now now that I am doomed to die. Hmm. Now, TTFN. And Magnus, what was it? I said, TTFN. <laughs> Ta-ta for now. Uh-huh. Uh, now, this obviously impresses Magnus, but Magnus is still not necessarily moved to forgiveness. Uh, uh-huh. He does not make a promise to fulfill Guffle's last wish, which is which is kind of harsh. Yeah, and nothing else of note then happens on Sunday, so we can... Well, I mean, Guffle dies. Oh, yeah, that's true. Guffle dies shortly after King Magnus leaves. Uh, you're right. But uh, aside from that minor event, nothing else happens. Oh, tell that to his wife and small child. <laughs> uh, what about Gisel? What's he up to? Uh, well, he's just sitting there chained up in a dungeon, being watched mm. by his kindly DM. Right. <laughs> Rolling nat one after nat one as he tries to yeah, escape. He's like, I tried <laughs> to pick the locks. <laughs> Damn it. That's a lovely way to spend again? a Sunday. Um, <laughs> no. uh, as soon as dawn breaks on Monday, uh, which oddly enough, the nones thing doesn't seem to affect uh, Sunday afternoon, just Saturday afternoon. Now, as soon as dawn breaks on Monday, the Icelanders are gathering to discuss the situation once more. Apparently, they took Sunday off as well. Uh, oh, Tate Kazursen uh, emerges as the leader pretty quickly, even if somewhat reluctantly. Yeah, but he understands that the outcome of Giesel's trial will probably affect more than just Giesel. In fact, he fully expects King Magnus' anger at Giesel to extend to other Icelanders. He says, We won't come out of this very well if our fellow countrymen and distinguished friend is killed. Yet we can all see how complicated it would be to get involved in this case. Whoever does so risks himself and his money. <laughs> it's a very it's a very 11th century Icelandic way of uh, phrasing the risks. It, it Risk is. your life and your cash. And your yeah, the, the, the priorities Two are very clear. concerning there. things. <laughs> yep. Uh, but he is right. I mean, this is a complicated situation. Regardless of the risk involved, they do eventually agree to support Gisel. Each man there swearing an oath to take that they'll follow his lead. Yeah, and with these oaths sworn, the Icelanders apparently then head to the bathhouse, which is where they are when they hear the trumpet sounding, which is an indicator that the trial will begin shortly. Now, Tate immediately gets dressed and leads the men out of the bathhouse, and they gather with the other Icelanders and march loudly down the street toward the jailhouse where Gisel is being held. Vigorously toweling off as they go. Yes, uh, now, at this point, the Thouter provides us with a vivid image of Tate, uh, which is detailed enough to be unusual for medieval Icelandic literature. Mm-hmm. He, he's wearing a shirt and linen trousers with a gold band around his forehead. He's also wearing a party-colored cloak, a multicolored cloak, uh, in scarlet and brown with gray fur lining, uh, with the fur showing. Mm. Now, usually when we get a description like this, we know that something big is about to happen. That's right. And it does. Uh, with Tate in the lead, the Icelanders rush to the jailhouse, hoping to get there before the king's men. Yeah, and now the, the action shifts into the jailhouse, where we have the woman who watched over the jailhouse, uh, who had recently shuttered up the window, so she can't see who's approaching. She hears this sound, and she assumes it's the king's men approaching, so she rushes downstairs to warn Gisel that his time is drawing short. But Gisel seems to be at peace with the situation. He looks at her and he says, Let's not regret that, dear lady. And then he recites a verse. I'll still be cheerful, although the trees of the wounds rod intend to rob the poet of his life. 
The irons are starting to warm me to the bones. Every man dies sometime, lady. But not every man really lives. <laughs> but a valiant heart has been given to this young warrior. Brave, I shall commemorate my deeds of courage and poetry once more. And as he finishes the poem, the front door of the jailhouse is crashed down. Uh, the Icelanders burst inside. Uh, and not expecting a rescue party necessarily, uh, Gissel mm-hmm. is surprised. He's said to have flinched a little. Uh, but he quickly realizes that Tate and his companions mean him no harm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they cut him free and escort him out of the jailhouse and down the street toward the meeting place for the trial. Yeah. Hey, John, where, what other saga, since you always remember these little things, what other saga did we see the same kind of motif in where a brave man flinches just a little? Uh, I think you're thinking of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. No, it, I mean, yes, but no. <laughs> it, it, we definitely, uh, we just read uh, one, and it might be it might be in Barth's saga, um, but I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Someone encounters something really, really scary, and he flinches just a little bit. Oh, it might have been Thorstein Stouter, Thorstein Shiver. Oh, sorry. Okay, yes, you're talking about it Thorstein is. Stouter. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. It's Thorstein Shiver, who he's supposed to be very, very brave, and it's right. when uh, he hears that sound or something like that. But um, right. uh, yeah, we did see something like that before. Anyway, while they are walking uh, down the street, they meet up with a man whose name is Sonny, the head of the king's men, and Sonny is on his way to get Gisel. And when Sony spots Tate leading Gissel from the jail down the street, uh, he's not too happy. Yeah, he's understandably upset. Uh, I want to point out that the Icelanders could have avoided this awkward meeting if they hadn't stopped at the bathhouse before breaking Gissel out of jail. Well, uh, I-, I want to point out that the, that's true, but their intention is not to uh, abduct and I- rescue Gissel. They're bringing him to the trial. Mm-hmm. They're just there as supporters. Right, right. But this is still an awkward meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Sony says, You Icelanders moved quickly. It looks to me like you want to make your own judgment on this man rather than letting the king do it. If you're smart, you won't mention what you've done this morning. King Magnus has been very angry for much less than one of his retainers being killed by a bunch of Suetlanders. He calls them Suetlanders. Yep. It's such an odd insult that I, I, I had to look this one up and learn more about it. Yep. So, um, of course you did. Yeah, well, of course I did. Yeah, the term is Murfjondi or Murlandi, um, which is a derogatory term that's used by Norwegians for Icelanders. That means something like suet eaters or suet men or suetlanders. Um, and that derives from the perceived low status diet of Icelanders who eat sausages made from sheep suet. Only the best, the finest sheep suet, however. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if you'll remember this, but uh, we have to go back a ways. Uh, in Cormac's saga, uh, Narfi, one of our favorite fools, uh, was cooking sheep suet sausages. He calls uh-huh. them snakes of the cauldron at one point and uh, waggles it in Cormac's face. No, no I don't remember that. Um, and I think the bigger question here is why you can pull up such a little detail like that out of thin air. What is Look, wrong with you? My my brain is like a vat full of suet sausages. You just, you just stick the fork in there and you see what pops up. It's uh, great. <laughs> Actually, I just remember because uh, the snakes of the cauldron line. Yeah, well, that's true. Snakes of the cauldron. I don't know if that was a notable witticism or not, but I, I do. I, that that phrase is familiar to me. But anyway, the 
The insult suet eater or suet lander is a great example of how one group can denigrate another by dismissing their diet as disgusting, which in turn helps to reinforce their provincial or lower status, right? And we can see that all throughout human history when a different culture comes into contact with one another, with another one, um, and especially this happens when a majority seeks to keep that minority at a distance in its place. Right, right. Now, there's a lot of privilege that comes to the power to define what's gross, right, what's disgusting. And yeah. what's not when it comes to cultural cuisine. Absolutely, yes. And you know, I know we should get back to the plot here, but I do have a great story that I stumbled into when researching this. Um, it's relevant to the digression. Um, and I don't know where else we'll have a chance to share this one. Do you mind? I mean, what else is Saga thing if not an excuse for branching digressions? And if you've got something that is relevant to the insult suet eaters, I, I give you the floor. Okay, so when I was looking into the history of the suet eater insult, I came across a great story in Saint Thorlax's saga, another famous bishop saga, bishops, another famous bishop saga. Okay, so uh, Thorlax is the patron saint of Iceland, and I would say by far the most popular Icelandic saint. Absolutely, yes. Uh, so the saga tells a, a short miracle story about a statue of Saint Thorlax that was constructed and stood in a church in England. Now, one day, an English cleric stops by to visit the church, and he's surprised to see this statue of an unfamiliar man standing there inside the church. And so he asks, who, who is this? Who does this represent? And the man who built it is very proudly, he says, uh, this is none other than St. Thorlach, a, a famous bishop from Iceland. The clerk bursts out laughing uncontrollably, can't help huh. himself. And he marches off to the kitchen, and he picks out a sausage and he comes back and stands in front of this statue and he starts waving the sausage around, taunting the statue, saying, Hey there, suet man. You hungry? You're just a suet bishop, aren't you? Suet bishop? <laughs> yes, yeah, what he says. And when he's finished, he turns to go, but finds that he can't move from the spot. And not only that, John, he can't release the, the sausage from his hand. He's stuck there holding this sausage in front of the statue of St. Thorlach. And no matter what anyone tries, they can't move him. And so this this magical event, you know, word spreads very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And people start flocking to the church from miles around to witness this miracle of St. Thorlach and the sausage. So finally, with this crowd gathered around, the cleric starts to feel bad about what he said. And he admits uh -huh. he was foolish to mock St. Thorlach. He begs for his forgiveness in front of the large crowd. He begs the crowd to pray for his release. And not immediately... But after uh -huh. a while, he is freed. And after that, he always thought of St. Thorlach with a much deeper respect. And can I ask a question? Oh, go ahead. Yes. Uh, what happened to the sausage? The sausage? Yeah. Did, did it become a relic? Did somebody eat it? Like, what do you do with a sausage that's been the site of a miracle? I mean, uh, that's, uh, that's a great question. You can't just take a miracle sausage and toss it back in the kitchen, can you? Absolutely not. But uh, you got to admit, you'd be tempted to eat it. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, a little bit, you know, just, just to see what would happen. Uh, not the whole thing. A sausage like that, you don't eat all at once. No, no, no. It's. A, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I'm going to have to check the sources on that one. But uh, yeah, you could see how this suet eater thing is kind of a big deal in the uh, right. in these texts. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that most of the sources for that aren't really coming from actual Norwegians. No, no. I, honestly, I didn't come across any Norwegian texts that use the term. They're all Icelandic sources. Right, which is kind of interesting. I, I'm mm -hmm. not casting doubt on the Norwegian attitude toward Icelanders, 
But I think it's interesting that the Icelanders are often the ones putting these words in the mouths of Norwegian characters. Mm, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, there's something of an inferiority complex there. Uh, mm, I, I'd, be willing to bet, yeah, I'd be willing to bet that in most cases where we see that Sunnider insult, the Icelanders maybe end up proving themselves better than the Norwegians afterward. Hmm. Well, that is certainly true in the Thorlak story, if uh-huh. you replace Norwegian with stuck-up English cleric, yes. Um, let's see how this Giesel trial plays out, shall we? Maybe it will prove your theory. Uh, well, let's see. Where were we? Uh, we were talking about Giesel being escorted to his trial by oh, right. his Icelandic companions led by Tate. Right, that's right. Uh, okay, so at the start of the trial, a Norwegian called Sigurd Wolkord stands up and offers a lengthy argument about how terrible Giesel's deed was. Mm-hmm. How Giesel failed to seek compensation for the killing of his father, as one should do in cases like this. How the king must make an example of Giesel if he doesn't want to lose the respect of his retainers. He then, he is sort of his concluding argument. Why, if the king's followers are killed in this way, they might even let it go all the way to the top and not respect the king more than any other man. This is an abomination. It deserves serious punishment. I suggest we kill ten Icelanders for the one we lost. That will teach them to take men from the king's power. So he wants to summarily execute ten Icelanders to balance the loss of Gelfald. Yeah, that's the plan, yeah. But, John, nine of those guys wouldn't have been involved in any way. Uh, They're Icelanders. Birds of a feather and all that. Uh Uh-huh. Plus, how else will those filthy suet eaters learn to respect their betters? (laughs) <laughs> Spare the rod, spoil the suit eater, Andy. That's what Sigurd Wolkord says. Well, it's not a great plan. <laughs> no, it is um, not. And it's a, it's exactly what Tate feared would happen. Um, so he steps up and says, you know, he asks if he can speak. But uh, as soon as King Magnus realizes who he is, he shuts it down. <laughs> Shutting it down is putting it lightly. Uh, Magnus says, under no circumstances would I allow you to speak, since every word you say will only do more harm. It would be more appropriate for me to cut out your tongue. Uh, well, that's a bit harsh. Yeah, it is. Um, like I said, uh, Magnus is being played as a type at this point uh, <laughs> in the text uh, for a reason. Um, so now he's the rootless king of Norway. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, but it, you know, if I'm Gissel, I'm not feeling too good about my prospects right about now. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Then uh, another man steps forward. Uh, he, he's been silent, relatively passive in the story up to now. But it's time for Jon Ogmunderson to uh, step into the spotlight and show everyone what he's got. Right now, King Magnus doesn't recognize him at first, but uh, allows him to speak when he realizes that it's the Icelandic priest, Jon. Yes, and uh, Jon, you re- he really chews the scenery here. Now, I'm, um, just, I'm he... just a small town, Bishop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know your big Nithero city ways here, but uh, back, but back where I come from. Well, before we sit down to a big plate of suet sausages, we, we like to praise God and ask for forgiveness for our enemies. That's right, yes. Yeah, he, he begins this long, dramatic sermon about right and wrong, justice and injustice, morality and sin. He reminds King Magnus that both Norway and Iceland are Christian, and that the Icelanders are his subjects just as much as the Norwegians are. And he talks about the devil working through the mouths of wicked men, highlighting the judgment of Sigurd Wolkord as a vivid example of this. He says, Such men with their ill will and wicked promptings do the most to destroy justice and mercy 
and other admirable traits in chieftains, why they urge and incite them to fierceness and crime, gladdening the devil with the slaughter of Christian men. That's a, that's a stern rebuke against Sigurd. Oh, it is, yes. Uh, but the most important part of this sermonic defense of Gisel is directed at King Magnus himself. He reminds Magnus that he is a representative of divine judgment and that God lives in good men and correct judgments, just as the devil and his henchmen live in the deeds of evil men and wrong judgments. And he concludes with a <coughs> warning that if he judges incorrectly, Magnus will burn in the hottest fires of hell. <laughs> but if he judges correctly, he may just be awarded eternal salvation. Wow. Mm. Uh, King Magnus in front of everyone. By I the mean, way. yeah, absolutely. Uh, King Magnus listens to all of this very carefully, and then says, "You have spoken most severely, priest." That, that's all he says. There's, there's really no indication that he's angry with Yon at all. Yeah, um, it's an interesting moment, and and in that silence, Gissel steps up and asks if he can st- if he can speak as well. Oh no 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 no. The defendant should never take the stand. <laughs> well, Giesel's going to take the stand. Oh, and with the king's permission, he explains his motivation. I, I will start with the killing of my father. <laughs> I was six I hope years you've got old. a while. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is going to be a long story. He says, I was six years old and my brother Thorvald was nine. We were there when Gjalfald and Thormod, his father-in-law, cut my father down. We were standing there right next to our father when it happened. Gjofald turned on us. He said that we should both be killed too, and though it's not manly to admit it, my voice was too choked at the time with tears to say anything. Yeah, and Magnus' response is, Well, it would appear you've managed to get over it now. Yes, and uh, Gissel says, Yes, it's true, my lord. I spied on Gjofald all spring, and I had the opportunity to kill him twice. But I paid heed to the church, once when the deed first happened, and again when I heard the ringing of the afternoon bell, which is probably why the mid-afternoon bell saved me on Saturday. And if you'll allow me, I, I've composed a poem about you that I'd like to share. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got a poem he wants to share. I mean, that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, wasn't he going to explain his motivation for killing Gelfeld? Well, I mean, his father was killed and Gelfeld did it. He wants to get revenge. What more is it? But he's got a great praise poem. And as you know, praise poems can sometimes work wonders when you're about to be executed. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a Hoffathlossen, uh, a head ransom yes. poem. Uh, yes, it is. But we saw Ale Skallagrimson use one of these to get out of trouble when he was captured by King Eric Bloodaxe in England. Exactly, yeah. So what do we know about this poem? Uh, nothing, nothing. Yeah. Uh, the text yeah. says that he recited the poem well, but it wasn't much of a poem. <laughs> it's a little anticlimactic. Yeah, I mean, it is. There's kind of a buildup there. And then it's like, eh, we don't have anything about it. Yeah. But I, I have to assume that the poem just didn't survive. And uh-huh. this is an easy way to gloss over it. I, maybe, but you don't have to say that it wasn't much of a poem. That's a bit insulting. No, you don't. It's a bit insulting. It is. Yeah, that's fair. But uh, maybe that's why the poem wasn't remembered. I don't know. I, I mean, it's too bad. I mean, if, if Gissel did compose and deliver a Hoffelossen poem, uh, I'm pretty sure it would be the last recorded poem of its kind. Uh, yes, it would. It would indeed. Uh, in fact, that's remarked upon in some of the scholarship in those many small references. But uh, no, we just have a uh, reference to this one, not the poem itself. Um, but we do 
John. We have some of Giesel's other poetry. Um, I like it. And if I told you the subject of this one surviving poem, it would spoil the end of the story. So I'm going to hold off. Is it about suet sausages? Nope. Oh, <laughs> then I have no idea. Uh, well, we're not far off from the end of the text now. Let's wrap this up. Okay, so uh, when Giesel finishes reciting his poem, he turns to Tate and thanks him for the support. And he says, I don't want to put you in danger any longer. Now I will submit myself to King Magnus and offer him my own head. And in a gesture of total submission and self-abasement, he approaches the king and lays his head in his lap and says, Do as you think is best with my head, my lord. I would be grateful if you wish to give it to me and also perhaps such a rank as you think appropriate. King Magnus seems pretty pleased about this. Uh, and I think he's mm-hmm. pleased by the poem as well, even though the author has told us as much of a poem. Uh, he just says, you look after your own head and go and take your place in Gavald's seat there at the table. Eat and drink there. Carry out all of Gavald's duties. But know that I do this mainly at the request of my friend Gavald. Well, maybe it wasn't the poem then. Maybe not. Yeah, this seems to be more about honoring the wishes of a dead man. Uh, but retaining yeah. the services of a good or even reasonably talented poet is an attractive prospect to a king, uh, especially mm-hmm. with imperial ambitions, right? Uh, like King Magnus has. Yeah, exactly. So Magnus then explains the penalty for Gjalfald's death will be 16 marks of gold. And uh, mm. a mark is, a, in this period, is about eight ounces of gold. Uh, so it's a pretty hefty price. Okay, eight. Uh, I got this. So if a mark is about eight ounces of gold, John, and the price is set at uh, 16, so hold on, eight times 16 is something like 80 plus 48 there, so something like 100, 128 ounces of gold. That's a lot of gold, 128 ounces. Come uh, on now. That, that that was an interesting method. Um, you could, It didn't occur to you to go with this and just realize that it was like eight pounds of gold? <laughs> I don't know anything about that. It's it's 16 marks for 8 ounces. It's 8 times 16, which would be the same as 16 times 8. Anyway. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's 128 ounces of gold, John. It, it is also that, yes. Uh, I'm glad you were able to process that out loud for us. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, Andy Math is an oral experience. Uh, <laughs> at least I got it right. I, I'm i right, yes, right? It's, it's 128 ounces of gold, yes. Woo-hoo! Uh, to, to put that in perspective, uh, not your math ability uh, to put the the <laughs> amount of gold in perspective one ounce of gold today is worth somewhere between 1500 and 2000 dollars uh, i actually checked because i was reading this section of the poem it's uh, currently about 1800 as we're recording this but that what, it fluctuates a lot 1800 dollars for one ounce of gold yeah god yeah. damn that's yeah. a lot that's uh, a lot of money uh, we wasted all our time doing this instead of uh, collecting gold uh <sighs> Now, I'm going to save your brain from uh, too much strain with the math on this because I figured it out earlier. Using modern prices for gold, Gelfald's death is valued at about $230,000. Wow. Okay, that is still, even today, a lot of money. Right, although I, I mean, think killing you know, someone today ends up costing a bit more than that. Uh, sure, yes. The uh, I mean, the only equivalent I can think of would be like a wrongful death suit, and that can end up costing anywhere from something like 500000 to... A million or millions, depending on the situation. Right. But I think, you, OJ? Right. But if we think in terms of sort of modern equivalencies, I think we're looking at more like a life insurance policy, right? Where you would mm-hmm. uh, maybe have an insurance policy that covers a few years of your salary rather than uh, trying to do some kind of Yeah, I guess so. But I mean, if we're thinking about the price of an individual's life, right. um, that is one in a suit, a wrongful death suit makes more sense than a uh, 
than a because uh, you're suing, you're taking this person to court and suing right. them for the right. the value of that person's life. But I think the comp- the idea of compensation kind of works the way a life insurance policy would, right? The idea is that it compensates you for the, the person missing uh, rather than mm-hmm. being really punitive. Uh, but again, that's you know that's thinking in modern equivalencies. I'm not sure what the actual yeah. cost would be back in the late 11th century when Gelfand's killed because I haven't looked up the exchange rate on 11th century gold to modern gold. I imagine it's pretty steep, and uh, Giesel owes a hefty sum at 16 marks. Right, uh, but he won't have to raise it alone. Uh, King Magnus now orders that eight Icelanders will have to stand surety for Giesel, each paying two hmm. marks of gold on Giesel's behalf. And that's, <laughs> again, by modern prices, $28,800 each. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot better than covering it all by himself. Yeah, it's but better for him. I'm, if I'm one of those Icelanders who followed Tate to the trial, you could bet I've been inching toward the door as they discuss all of this. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry because King Magnus has put aside his vengeful wrath and he's ruling with a more level head now. Oh, how nice. He, he further stipulates that half the debt will be written off, leaving each of the Icelandic bailmen paying only a single mark of silver, so $14,400 by modern prices. That's still that's still a lot. Sure, uh, but as Tate said earlier, the alternative to a fine was the execution of Gissel and much harsher conditions for Icelanders going forward. Or True, remember, yeah. we've had at least one man arguing that 10 of the Icelanders should be killed along with Gissel. Yes. Paying out the fine, by comparison, looks like a pretty good compromise right now. Comparatively speaking, this is a much better arrangement. So the trial ends at this point with uh, King Magnus complimenting uh, Jon Ogmundason. He says... I liked your sermon very much. You you spoke on God's behalf. I would like you to pray for me, since your prayers will have influence with God. I believe that your will and his are one and the same. That is a nice compliment. And I like that you transitioned into a kind of a Daniel Day-Lewis, There Will Be Blood. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of actually never there. seen that movie. Oh, well, that you, you hit it perfectly. I was going really for a more it. sort of sedated uh, Yosemite Sam. <laughs> okay. Well, the tale itself ends with a little scene featuring Jon and Sigurd Wolkord, the angry Norwegian. Well, what's what's Gisel doing? Oh, he's uh, he took Gelfald's place like he was told to at the king's table, and he's out of the story altogether. That is disappointing. Yeah, it is. Uh, he's gone. Yeah, I, I do have more on Gissel from the other version, but uh, real quick, the Thouter ends with Jon being summoned to the home of Sigurd Wolkord, and when he arrives, Sigurd explains that he's been bitten by Jon's sermon at the trial, and he's been sick ever since. And he asks Jon to sing over him and intercede with God on his behalf, since he clearly has influence. Right, he's, he's as sick as a man who's eaten too many suet sausages. Uh, this is a fairly typical scene from a saint's life, really. Um Jon sings and prays for Sigurd and then blesses him. And Sigurd immediately recovers, saying that Jon's words are powerful, both the good mm-hmm. and the harsh ones. And then yeah. Sigurd offers his thanks and gives some gifts to Jon. Uh, a bit later, Sigurd goes on to found a monastery on Niederholm and transfers some extensive lands to it. And that, my friends, is the end of the Thouter. It's interesting that this version drops Giesel in favor of uh, Jon and the foundation of the monastery at Neitherholm because it's I mean it's not too surprising but it is it's it's interesting I think you've yeah. said this is a story that's inserted into the saga of King Magnus Berleg 
So it's primarily concerned with the affairs of the court. Uh, this, this short mm-hmm. narrative introduces Giesel, who's a who becomes a new retainer in the king's company, right, with a sort of interesting uh, narrative episode. It also highlights Jan Ogmundersen's role in the transformative moment for the king and his concept of justice. Yeah, and remember these stories, this this saga of uh, of King Magnus Berleg is written by an Icelander, yeah. very likely. So it makes sense that he's trying to hit all these these points. Absolutely. Um, I think that second point you just made is kind of a big deal because while the story really emphasizes the heroic qualities of Gissel and the bravery of the Icelanders who support him in his heroic quest to avenge his father, the real key to the story is the Icelandic priest, Jón Ogmundarsson, the future bishop of Holar, the future saint, transforming an irate and vengeful Norwegian king into an example of Christian justice and mercy. I think uh, Marlene Siklimini says something about how this new form of Christian justice works to take into account the motives and circumstances of a killing, offering a more holistic, potentially more restorative form of justice that stands in contrast to the heroic justice through retaliation, while not necessarily condemning it. It's kind of cool. It, you know, what's interesting about this is that it's in some ways an inversion of the usual Fauter narrative tropes, right? Mm. The, the usual Fauter narrative is a Norwegian king gets agitated at an Icelander who then proceeds to run kind of witty circles around the king, right? yeah. who, who sort of out-clevers the king. In this case, uh, you've got an angry Norwegian king, but the Icelander instead kind of out-Christians him. Yeah. Uh, which is an interesting yeah. kind of angle on the usual Fowler story. It's good stuff. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Now, you mentioned that there are some important differences between the two versions earlier. Right? Uh, and I think this is probably the time to highlight those before we close the episode out. So uh, can you just give us the overview, some highlights of the differences between the two versions now that we've covered the King Saga version? Yeah, sure. So uh, the first major difference is that the Yon Saga version completely skips over the first part of Giesel's story. So you Almost mean it, like Gissel's not important. Right. It skips Gissel's arrival in Norway or it skips the slaying of Gjafald. Uh Both of those. It starts oh. with Gissel already in prison, though okay. it does offer a very, very quick explanation, noting that uh, he had killed Gjafald to avenge his father. Uh, he was young when it happened. That's the guy, that kind of stuff. But yeah. Is Gjafald important in that narrative at all or... No. Because he's not important in this one at all. He's just... No, there. no. He's not. He's just an important yeah. figure in the king's uh, right, you know, right. retinue and all that right. stuff. But we take that um, on but, faith, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the opening of the story uh, focuses on Jon's travels as he makes his way north from Denmark. So it actually begins with, there was a man named Jon Ogmodersen who traveled uh-huh. north from Denmark, da 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 um, He was staying with King Sven in, in this story, and then he moves up to Trondheim in Norway. Right, and that it makes sense that that's where the focus is, right? It's it's Jon Saga, right? So uh, right, right. But what about Tate and the Icelanders? Uh, that's all in there. Um, uh-huh. Even the the poem that Giesel recites to the jailer or the DM and the insult about the suet eaters. Uh, though uh, I, one of the things that's cool about this version is that Tate gets to respond to the insult here to the suet eater thing. Yeah, yeah, he's confronting he a, a man. Uh, yeah, he's confronting a man named Alvin instead of Sony. But uh, okay. what he says is. Uh, Shut up, you evil plague on sheep, or I'll be forced to beat you. <laughs> it's a nice and then addition. The man, yeah, the man's then quiet and kind of just like, okay, we'll go, we'll follow you. Well, um, bah. so that that's a that's a good good spot. Um, mm-hmm. The the political and cultural tension that uh, we find between the Icelanders and the Norwegians uh, that's palpable in both versions of the story, and uh, the trial scene actually runs more or less the same 
at least until Jon Ogmunderson finishes speaking, and then it okay. changes. Uh, so in the version we just heard, Giesel then stepped up and gave a whole spiel about why he pursued vengeance against <laughs> Gelfold. Right? He does the, mm-hmm. right, I started out as a poor farmer, and so forth. What does he say in the Jon Saga version? Oh, he doesn't say anything. He's never <laughs> given a chance to say anything. What? Yeah, yeah, no. King Magnus listens to Yon. Uh, he waits for him to finish. And when he does, Magnus waves him off and says, Oh, you've spoken well, priest, but this man deserves the most evil death. And Is then that really your orders... Yosemite Sam? No, that's just my version of uh, yeah. uh, of King Magnus. Right. If it doesn't satisfy, right. you can you know, okay. do your own. Uh, but then he orders King, uh, he orders Alvin, the head of the guard who had insulted Tate in this version, to seize Gissel from the Icelanders. Uh-huh. And as the King's Guard approaches the Icelanders and they're about to fight the King, they're they're all about to fight uh, to protect their countrymen and uh, to all of that stuff's going on. Gissel steps forward and surrenders himself, hoping to spare Tate and the Icelanders any further harm. So he's convicted, and I assume at this point he's being sent to execution. So, yeah, that's quite different. It is, and it gets better. Alvin quickly, very quickly, builds a scaffold to show those Icelanders, uh, also to avoid uh-huh. any further conflict conflict with them. Um, and as Gisel is being led toward the gallows, Jón, who's standing by the king, he asks, Will you allow me, my lord king, to do what I want with the cloak that you gave me this winter? And Magnus recognizes immediately what John is suggesting, and he complains, and he says he could do what he wants with it because it's his own property. I mean, that's nice. <laughs> it is. It is, but not really. He's very angry at Yon. He adds uh-huh. uh, that Yon shouldn't expect any more gifts from kings if this is the way he's going to treat them. I suppose that's fair. I mean, who puts a fancy robe on a man about to be hanged? Uh, a future saint, John. That's who. Uh, so yeah, Yon walks out to meet Gissel and he spreads this cloak, which I think has a hood over his shoulders and, um, Alvin the guard, he, he sees this and he taunts them and he says, that's not going to give that suet eater new life. You know, he's going to hang on the gallows with or without the cloak. The suet eater again. Yep. And, and, and yeah, the, uh, the Yon saga version really builds that up. He uses it multiple times. Mm. Um, and then they start stringing Gissel up like a thief, and they let him hang. Oh, see, now, this right here is the difference between how a saint uses a cloak and how a practical man would use a cloak. It's nice okay. to drape it over his shoulders, but a practical man, you would think, would say, can I use it however I want? Yes. Fine. Spread it over the spot where you're about to be dropped off the gallows, <laughs> nail it into place yeah, so the guy can say. stand on it. You definitely got to secure it, otherwise it's going to fall through with the body. No, but so you, you nail it into place. Um, I mean, who's to say that they've got a whole trapdoor thing and you just need to push I mean, them off? It's you, know, they, like, you just say they built the gallows. Okay. Um, but all right, fine. Uh, so I have to admit, I I didn't expect that he'd actually be hanged. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They definitely hang Gissel. And yeah. he is left dangling from that rope as the crowd disperses. And Yon weeps and heads off to church. And according to custom, at least according to the text, a hanged man was to be left on display until the rope breaks or his body falls by some other means. Right. you got to decorate the place. Mm. You have to display the king's justice, right? I mean, how else are you going to prevent future criminals? Well, that form of justice has always worked well, hasn't it? Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. The deterrent quality of public execution. Very Uh effective. That's That's why we never, ever have to execute anyone publicly anymore. 
Right, right. Yeah, I'm guessing King Magnus hasn't read Foucault's Discipline and Punish just yet. Um, I can think of a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anyways, uh, the days roll off, roll by, and, and finally Wednesday rolls around. Mm-hmm. And Yon is leaving church with a group of eight other men. And he's making his way past the gallows when he sees Gissel hanging there in that fancy cloak. And so he pauses for a moment and then he decides that he wants to go and retrieve the cloak from the body. Four days later. Well, it's three days later. Oh, it's Because it was on... Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. So he walks around the gallows three times clockwise, and then he falls to his knees and offers a prayer for Giesel. And when he's mm-hmm. finished, he asks his companions to cut Giesel down, which they do. Um, I can see where this is headed, but we did discuss leave the body up there until it falls down. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, but I, can, but... I can see where we're going with this. Well, I mean, you studied hay geography, so of course you do. Um, they cut the rope. And Giesel falls down, landing upright on the ground. So I, I, I presume that means he landed on his back, right? right. So it's, he's facing upwards. Um, Yon rushes over to him and takes the cloak off and greets Giesel by name. Um, first of all, I kind of like the idea that Giesel just drops down like a cat and lands on his feet and is just falling. No, he doesn't. He, he, no, he lands know. on his back. I understand. I understand. Uh, but, but I do like that idea of him landing like a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I also noticed that uh, Jan, happy as he is to greet Gizel, does take the cloak back. I noticed that too. Uh, although I, I should point out, he might just be lowering the hood. Hard to say. Uh, no, I, I think he steps over and just yanks that cloak out from under Gizel before greeting <laughs> him. My cloak. My cloak. My miracle cloak. I'll be taking this back, whether you're alive or dead. I might have to um, save some other people. <laughs> okay, that's what we're going to go with. He yanks the cloak back. <laughs> Either way, Gissel opens his eyes and he looks completely normal under the cloak. And then he tries to stand up, but he can't quite get his feet to work right. I mean, he's been hanging for three days. Right? It makes yes. sense that his feet and ankles would be a, a little swollen. Well, but do you know why only his feet and ankles are damaged while the rest of him, including his neck, which was, you know, that's what he was hung by. All of that <laughs> is just fine. Uh, sure. Uh, tell you what, I'll write down my answer. We'll see if I'm right. Okay. Well, you, Mr. Hey Geography, see if you Hang on. can figure this out. Okay. Okay, go you ahead. ready? Yep. All ahead. right. All right, so Giesel explains it all, and he says, When you put that cloak over me, it seemed to me that I was transported to a beautiful place. <laughs> the only problem is that my feet protruded below the hem of the cloak, and now I can't walk. <laughs> <laughs> so I, 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 I walked into the light, but my feet stuck out. That's right. Yeah. He... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's just say that I wrote that. <laughs> oh, so yeah. Okay. All right, then. Exactly hmm. that. Word for word. Oh, yeah. Well, you're not showing me. So Bob, I'm going to take your word for it. You probably did write that. <laughs> good good job. Well done, John. Give, give me about 30 seconds and I'll show you that I wrote that. <laughs> Here I thought you knew this. Oh, well. So um, it's at this moment that the Bishop's Saga version acknowledges that there are other accounts of Giesel's trial where he isn't hanged and miraculously healed. Um, It says, some books tell that the aforementioned Giesel had not been hanged, but had been fully reconciled with all those who wished him harm, thanks to the intercession of John the Priest. Uh, Which is is more or less what happens in the version of King Magnus' Saga. That's right, yeah. This, This could be a later addition to the text, right, that last statement. 
Well, the, that's the thing. I mean, these these sagas and stories, they get copied and recopied and edited and adapted over centuries. We can't really tell whether the reference to another version of the story comes with the original text or if it's a later edition. No. Yeah, you're right. Uh, which, which is why the question of which version came first is really difficult to answer. Mm-hmm. But what's clear is that this version is designed to not only emphasize the role of St. John Ogmunderson... But to help, but to help reinforce his sainthood through examples of his power to work miracles. Mm-hmm. And if you were impressed by the magic cloak trick, check out what he does to Gisel now. Jon kneels down next to him with his hand on Gisel's forehead, and he says, "Close your eyes." And he nods reassuringly. And then Gisel looks up, hurting and scared, but trusting in Jon to help. Uh, uh, starting to sound very specific. And then Yon claps his hands yeah. together <laughs> and he starts rubbing them together quickly, uh, letting out a, a long, controlled breath. Right. And the string music swells uh-huh. and Gisela is able to return to the king's service just in time to defeat Johnny Lawrenson in the old Trondheim <laughs> under-18 karate tournament. Am I right? Yeah, Johnny Lawrence. It would be Yoni Lawrenson, but yes. No, sorry, Yoni yes, Lawrenson, exactly. yes. Exactly. That is what makes this version so different from the one in the King Magnus saga. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, that ending's <laughs> not at all predictable. Uh, it comes right out of nowhere. I like it. Yeah, but but seriously, Yon does heal Giesel's feet, mm-hmm. adding yet another miracle to his resume. I like the idea of this the feet sticking out from under the cloak. I mean, remember mm-hmm. in Yal saga, we saw um, one of Yal's grandsons is under the cloak with him. And the cloak protects them. So the cloak is a stand-in for kind of God's protection. Yeah. But the boy's finger is sticking out from under the cloak, and so the boy's finger is burned off. But there's That's no great. other injuries. To I knew that I had seen this before yeah. somewhere, but I couldn't remember where. Yeah. It's Damn just, you, John, it's, for remembering all this. that same logic to it. Mm. Um, yeah. Great, great, great pick. Uh, so good. it's so it's another it's another miracle, right? It is. It is. Uh, so is this where it ends? Oh, no, 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 no. There's a, a similar scene where Sigurd Woolcord is sick and asks for Jon's help, only this one adds Alden, the that angry guard who insulted the Icelanders, and hung Gisel. Uh, he's sick too, and they both need healing. Uh, and then Gisel and Jon have a good meeting with King Magnus, and Gisel's given Gelfald's place at the table, like in the version that we covered. Uh, although there's no head laying in the lap, he basically comes up to King Magnus and he says... Uh, I would like uh, uh, some uh, property and uh, an office, if you can. And, and King Magnus, King Magnus just gives it to him. Um, so, huh. but, but again, the emphasis here is shifted in this version to the reverence that King Magnus develops for for Jon. And once Jon has the king's respect, he makes a point of asking Magnus to treat the Icelanders with more kindness. So Magnus agrees, and that's why when Gisel asks for a place at court, Magnus grants it happily. And it does say happily. He gladly gives this. Uh-huh. And so the story then ends, and this is where it's really weird, because it almost feels like this story kind of ends the way that the the Thouter should end uh, that we covered earlier. The story actually ends with a brief account of Gisel's adventures with King Magnus in Ireland, where he is made the lead man of the hostages that King Magnus sends to the Irish king. And even though then... King Magnus eventually ravages Ireland. Gisel manages to impress this Irish king so much that he lets him go free. And Gisel is allowed to return home to Iceland. And we're told that he had a son named Einar who has a great saga written about him. And that's the end. Um, is this this an Einar saga that we would know about? Uh, no, no. Uh, if this Einar saga existed, it does not anymore. Right, right. 
And I don't know of any other reference to it, but uh, there is a record of Gisel serving in King Magnus' guard and as a poet in his court. So that That's part right. is legit. That's right. Yeah, you, you mentioned earlier we have a surviving poem from Gisel. Uh, we do indeed, yes. Gisel's mentioned several times in King Magnus' saga as a character and as a source of information through his surviving poems. And the poem that I was referring to a while ago is a memorial poem from around 1103, which details all of King Magnus' accomplishments after his death. And it's, John, it's got some pretty good stuff in it, if you're interested. Uh, sure. Give me a taste. Okay. Yeah, like uh, like I said, the poem covers most of King Magnus' various campaigns, both at home and abroad in the Kingdom of the Isles and in Ireland. Um, I'm going to pick it up at a particularly beautiful section. When Magnus is fighting the Norman forces of Hugh of Montgomery in Wales in July of 1098. Uh, all of this is confirmed. Um and in that battle, uh, King Magnus kills Hugh of Montgomery by shooting him with an arrow. Uh, I believe through the eye, but uh, that can't be confirmed. Anyway, here's the poem. It's really good. The battle teacher shot with both hands. All the Lord's army fought magnificently. White-muzzled arrows flew from the elbow, which the king bent until Hugh fell. The men then obtained leave from their lord to return home when the battle had ended. The countrymen saw the foam-sprayed sails secured the mast tops above the splendid troop. The sea swelled in the raging destruction of the sapling, which is a kenning for storm, drove the sails against the stays. The precious dragon beneath the terrifier of the Danes, a kenning for Magnus, broke the back in every roaring bride of the ocean, a kenning for wave. The dark ocean struck against the decorated neck. The surge leaped into the jaws of the golden head. The corpse flame of the deep, a kenning for gold, shone like the cinder of heaven, a kenning for sun, from the skulls of the ruler's dragon. See, that's good stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we talked a few episodes ago. We addressed a question about what made Thord Menace's poetry kind of mediocre compared to some others. Um, I would encourage anyone who wants to know the difference to compare what Thord does to what you just heard from Gisela Lugesen. Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of poetry, especially near the end there, that got me invested in Old English and Old Norse literature in the first place. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Dr. David Johnson from Florida State. Uh, for introducing me to it. Are, are we doing shout outs now? Oh, just that one. Um, anyway, but I, I do think, you know, the imagery in that poem is really strong. Um, I like a lot of it. Um, it's worth reading. I particularly like that last line, the corpse flame of the deep shone like the cinder of heaven from the skulls of the ruler's dragon, which describes the gold armor or the bands shining in the sunlight on the heads of the men in King Magnus's boat as they make their way home across the sea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly this is the work of a a poet who knows the the um, the conventions, but also knows how to kind of use those conventions in ways to create specific effects. Right, yeah. that's solid poetry. That's good poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So there, there's certainly more we could say about Giesel Stouter, uh, both versions of them. But I think we, you know, we've more or less done our due diligence for this one saga short. <laughs> Saga short in quotation marks. Um, it's a fun text, and I think it's pretty well written. 
saga medium? Uh, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I think it's odd that Magnus' saga's version shifts from Gisel to Yon so sharply, kind of forgetting about the protagonist, uh, mm-hmm. which might be why Sigurd Nordahl thought that Yon's saga must have come first. Yeah, perhaps. I, I, I was thinking the same thing. And, and it, honestly, it's equally odd, though, that the Yon saga version includes all that stuff mm-hmm. about Gisel in Ireland. I mean, that's an awkward fit for a story that's really meant to highlight Yon's faith and wisdom. It would work better in the other, in the King Magnus saga. Right. I mean, it's, I mean overall, either way, overall, it's a good story. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, John, we don't rate these stories, do we? We, we do In saga shorts, do we rate are, them? Are you really I can't not remember. sure? Uh, no. I'm honestly not sure. <laughs> uh, but that does remind me, we uh, we haven't yet done the the uh, decacal, decacal, uh measurement. Oh, de- yeah, that's what it is. The de- How do we forget that? That's supposed to come in the beginning. I mean, possibly because you were taking the lead this time. Uh, maybe, maybe. But uh, did, did you happen to do the measurement? Uh, sure. Just a second. Um, I do have it. Uh, here we go. Gisel comes in at a low-calorie light beer size of 3.57 decicals. Three point, and I, I don't know how that compares to the other ones. I haven't been keeping track. <laughs> I'll tell you this. I know it's really short. This one's barely five pages in our yeah. complete Sagas of Icelanders collection. Uh, but, I mean, maybe for that reason, well worth a read. Right? I mean, yeah, if it's, you a, it's a good it. one to have among the survivals. Um, and as you said, there's a lot more we could do with this one. Yeah, I'm especially interested in the unified front of the Icelanders against the Norwegians. That appears really heavily in both versions, and both authors seem preoccupied with addressing the tension, especially in the in a way that makes the Norwegians look bad. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll let you listeners work that out on your own. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're done for now, right, John? Um, well, there's just one more thing. It's kind of quick, though. One more thing. Okay. Well, what's that? It's a nickname. Uh, uh, we, never really addressed, uh, we never really addressed Magnus' nickname, Bærfotter. Uh, tra- mm-hmm. Translated as bare leg or barefoot. Uh, do you know why we didn't address that, John? Uh, because we were preoccupied with telling the story and talking about lepers and witnessing miracles. No, no, not really. Uh, it's because King Magnus is—he's never called barefooter in uh, in either version. He's not, is he? No, not once. He's just King Magnus. Well, that's not going to stop me. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, he's widely known as King Magnus Berfotter in uh, contemporary and roughly contemporary sources, so I'm going to forge ahead with this. Okay, go ahead. I just thought you wanted to know he's not called that in the texts, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Berfotter is a compound. It's made up of bear, which means the same thing in Old Norse as it does in modern English, bear, and fotr, which means foot or it really means leg, although we do okay. sometimes accept translations as foot. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to make sure I'm, I understand everything here. Um, what you're telling mm-hmm. me, because this is very complicated linguistically. Yep. Yep. And I thank you for, uh, you know, digging in for us. Uh-huh. What what you're under, what you're telling me is that barefooter can be broken down into something meaning barefoot. Yeah. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. And I don't need your sarcasm about it. Thank you. <laughs> I am building towards something. Forgive me for oh. being thorough. Oh, no, please take your time. Quiet, you. Now, as you so thoughtfully pointed out, the translation isn't really an issue. Uh, what's more interesting, ahem, ahem, is the origin of the nickname. Okay. Uh, just like Gisselstauter, uh, there are some competing versions as to the origin of the name. Ooh, I like a mystery. Go ahead. Well, I can't promise a solution, Watson. Just, a, just an interesting case. Uh, first, we'll look at Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla, which has it as a... Oh, no, 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 no. 
the infamous Snorri Sturluson. I, you yes, let's look at the infamous Snorri Sturluson's Heimskringla, which has its own version of King Magnus' saga. Uh, chapter 16 of that saga describes the clothes worn by King Magnus, mm-hmm. noting that he earned the nickname Bear Legs because he liked to wear a short kirtle, uh, or even a kilt in the style of the men of the Kingdom of the Isles. Uh, and that includes like the Isle of Man, the Hebrides, and other nearby islands. Northern yeah, that, that, one, that makes a lot of sense because uh, he, he did spend a lot of time there. Yep. And I can imagine him bringing that Gaelic fashion back to Norway and attracting a lot of attention, especially if he had uh, nice thick calves. It's a man with a well-turned leg. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, Snorri also adds that some people called him Magnus the Tall because of his great height. Uh, and then others call him uh, Sturjadr uh, Magnus, Magnus the Turbulent or Warlike because of his violent nature. Yeah, well, he definitely enjoyed his military campaigns uh-huh. out there with his bow just mowing people down. But uh, you said there were multiple versions of the one nickname, not multiple nicknames. So, uh, Well, I mean, yes, that too. Uh, if you consult Saxo Grammaticus, for example, you find a different story. According to Saxo, uh, Magnus earned the nickname after fleeing from the Swedes in his bare feet. Hmm. Well, that, that is a little less impressive. Yeah. Uh, maybe Saxo has a bone to pick with the Norwegians, <laughs> and he's just trying to make the Magnus look bad. Hmm? It's just a, Saxo Grammaticus would be so small-minded as to allow his personal prejudices to creep into his political history. I am indeed. Yes, as that's a Dane, that, he he does have certain attitudes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably true. Yeah. Uh, and there's also uh, there's another version that suggests that Magnus earned the nickname for riding barefoot in the Irish style. Although I, I can't really find a good source for it, but it's it's something that everyone accepts as one of the versions. I mean, I like that one because it's exotic, uh, but it does mm-hmm. seem rather impractical for a man in his position. I mean, it seems like a good way to lose a toe. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, all right. Well, excellent. Uh, that was both fun and informative. Uh, do you have anything else to add about nicknames or are you, you um, good? I mean, just that we I mentioned uh, Magnus a few episodes back when we answered a question about multiple nicknames for the same person. Uh, and as you might have guessed from all of this list, uh, Magnus is actually one of those people who has nearly half a dozen nicknames mm-hmm. in various texts. If you sort of take, if you survey him across all the literature, he has quite a few different names, suggesting yeah. that he had a uh, a wide and varied career, but also that his fame extended in a bunch of places where he was known by different names. Yeah. Although, as we've kind of suggested here, I haven't done a study of this, but it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if each of those texts chooses the nickname for particular reasons and that yes. calls into question the legitimacy of the nicknames well it calls into question the legitimacy of the nicknames, but also it does suggest that he is widely known and widely famed he is, is why you would yes. accrue different nicknames but you know a lot of these people are talking about him a oh, hundred or multiple of hundreds of years after yeah. the fact so they can put yeah. whatever nickname on him they want right i mean i suppose if you're going to put it that way we can just call everybody the dead uh, which is you know <laughs> Doesn't really get us anywhere, but sure, if you want to, if you want to take all the romance out of it, sure, sure, yeah, all right. Well, that about does it for us. Uh, really quickly, I want to thank our pal uh, Jacob Faust for yet another great illustration. Um, if you check out our show notes or visit our social media, you can see Gissel in full leper face attacking Galfald. Pretty crazy it's, image. Uh, it's one of the more disquieting images that Jacob's done for us. Yes, it is. Uh, and if you like the work that Jacob's been doing for the podcast, uh, diligently and brilliantly illustrating scenes from some pretty obscure medieval Icelandic texts, then uh, then you should follow him on Instagram, where he is scarpathan underscore illustrator. 
Again, check out the show notes for a link to that. I'm also going to put a link in there to his recently opened Etsy shop where you can buy prints and t-shirts of his work. Um, I've communicated with Jacob and he has asked for recommendations of what people would like to see in the shop. Uh, so if there's something he's done either for the podcast or on his Instagram that you'd like to purchase for yourself in t-shirt or print form, mm-hmm. just send him a message and he'll make it happen. And I'm sure he'll be glad to hear from you. Lovely. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us to share your thoughts on Gieselstauter or any other text we've covered in the past or recently, uh, to answer whatever burning questions come to mind, you're going to want to send us a quick rune stick through our email, which is uh, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, or you can carve your rune stick into our social media. We are on Twitter at sagathingpod and on Facebook and Instagram as sagathingpodcast. And uh, if I'm being honest here, I don't visit Facebook very often, uh, but I do eventually get around to it. So uh, Twitter and email are a little bit better. That's understandable. Uh, If none of that works for you, by the way, you can also stick your message in a sheep suet sausage and send it our way in the name of St. Thorlac. That's an interesting option. I'm going to say I'll also accept a message in a bag with two gold marks. Okay. (laughs) I don't care. Quick quiz, Andy. How, how, How many ounces of gold is that? That would be 16, my friend. Well that done. That's an easy one. Uh, I just want to point out uh, to our listeners, I don't really care if it's medieval or modern marks as long as it's gold. Fair enough. I promise I'll answer that question or request a lot faster than the one that's tucked into a sausage. Wait, you're taking bribes now? No, I'm just being honest. I prefer to use that one than the one that's in a sausage. Uh, I, I think you're underestimating the value of a good sausage. <laughs> Okay, well, that does it for us. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back soon with the Saga of the Sworn Brothers. Until then, suet sausage, everyone. Bye for now.